Welcome to River Rock Bible Church. My name is Charlie Turner. Uh, I've had the privilege of being the one and only lead pastor of this church. If you're not familiar with our church, you're here on the right day if you're visiting because today is our five-year anniversary. Yeah, praise God. Five years. Um, My wife and I moved to the Austin area in the summer of 2012 to be a part of Hill Country Bible Church Austin, uh, their church planting residency, and we worked for a year with a team of eight families to plant the gospel here in Georgetown, and we got to watch a church spring up out of that. And so this church uh, started on the basis of gospel proclamation and discipleship, and I'm, I'm proud to say five years later, we are still committed to gospel proclamation and discipleship right here in Georgetown. And in just a little bit, we'll talk a little bit more about what we've seen God do over those last five years. But it is my privilege to serve not only as the church planner, but also as the pastor of this church. And I want to thank you, church, for making it such a privilege to be here. Um, Before I was in uh, the lead pastor, I was just a young, dumb, naive youth pastor. And uh, a group of people trusted me enough to be their lead pastor, and it has been an amazing journey to be a part of that. So thank you, church, for this privilege and this opportunity. Um, Many of you know that as we start our fifth year, we're starting a brand new series. This whole year, from September until May, we're going to be working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we'll have a few times where we jump out of Corinthians now and then to give ourselves a little bit of a break, but we're going to be spending about 32 weeks going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and the theme for this year is build up. And as we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, Paul says that we are to excel in building up the church. And he's talking specifically about the individuals using their spiritual gifts to build up the church. But he's also talking to a local church, the church at Corinth, which we're going to read a little bit about today, whom he's encouraging, hey, you need to be a part of building up the greater universal church. Don't forget your role in that. And so our theme this year is build up, and we're going to be building up ourselves as disciples and disciple makers. We're looking to build up God's kingdom as we go into the community and make disciples and as we go around the world to the ends of the earth, as Jesus called us to do to make disciples. And we're also looking to build up our influence in this community. God has really blessed us uh, here in Georgetown, and we want to continue to see his gospel go forward as we make more disciples of every man, woman, and child who are experiencing the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ. So we are excited to be starting this journey this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want to I ask how many of you have maybe heard this phrase or something similar to it. Jesus, yes. Church, no. Or how many of you heard something like this? Well, I have a personal relationship with Jesus, so I don't really need to go to church. Anybody ever heard anything like that before? Or I have a personal relationship with Jesus, and I, I don't really want to go to church That place is just full of hypocrites. Now, why is it that people would say this? Why do they say these things about the church? And it's sad to say that people people have this perception that Christians are hypocrites. And let me just say this. I don't think anyone out there expects that Christians would be perfect. I think people are realistic enough that even though we know that our faith is in Jesus Christ and we know how God views us, we know that we still make mistakes. 
We still sin, unfortunately. That is a reality. So no one expects us to be perfect. I think what happens is when the world looks at the church and we go out and we say to them that we want to proclaim to them, we want to share with them the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ, and they look at our lives compared to their lives and they see there's no difference, they say, you're a hypocrite. You haven't experienced life change. You watch the same TV shows I watch. You listen to the same music that I listen to. You use the same words that I use. You party the same way that I party. You, your sexual habits are the same as the rest of the world. You're watching the same stuff on the internet. You're doing all these same things. Your life is no different than my life. You are a hypocrite. And I got to be honest. They're not wrong. There are times when they're not wrong because we forget not only who God has called us to be, but who he has declared us to be. And that's exactly where the church in Corinth is. So when Paul writes this letter to 1 Corinthians, you need to know that the problems we're facing as Christians today are not new. It's been the same problem for over 2,000 years. This church in Corinth is, is about a five-year-old church plant. If you go back and read in Acts, you'll see that Paul planted this church in Acts chapter 18, and he then goes and spends a couple years in Ephesus, and then he comes back on a second missionary journey, and he's in Ephesus. So it's been about five years that this church has been planted. And if you want to read more about the planning of that church, I encourage you to read it in Acts 18. It's a, it's a pretty interesting and, and cool story to see how Paul goes about taking the gospel to this city. But what is interesting is that over 2,000 years, the church is still struggling with this reality of we live in a world and in a culture that does not follow Jesus and honor God with the way it lives, and we're saturated by those things, yet we're called by God to live differently, but not different in a weird way that people look at us and they're like, man, you guys, here comes, you know, here comes the 15-passenger Christian van, like the homeschool van, Right? Uh, you know, not, not in the weird way, like uh, when I was in high school, I had friends that thought it was cool. The phrase they used was, I'm going to be odd for God. And like, well, you're just kind of odd, period. Uh, they didn't understand that there's this tension that we have to walk as people who live in, in the culture, yet we're called out of the culture to be something different. And that's exactly where we find the church today. So if you're struggling with that, like I often do, don't worry, you're not alone. You're not alone in, in forgetting who God declares you to be and what he has called you to be. The writer of 1 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul. If you know anything about Apostle Paul, you know that he was a former Christian murderer who eventually becomes a martyr. And he's writing to this young church that is full of gifted Christians living like pagans. Now, the thing about this book is that it's composed of extremely hard words. Now, they're not hard words to understand, but they are hard words to receive and to put into practice. And so we have to know that going in. And uh, as we look at 1 Corinthians, I want you to understand that there's got to have a little bit of background. This is actually Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We don't know what happened to the first one, but in the book, he's going to reference an earlier letter. So this is now the second letter that Paul has written, and he's responding, number one, to a report that he receives from some of his friends who were in Corinth while he's in Ephesus. He gets a pretty bad report about the church, but then the church also writes him a letter and says, hey, we have 
we have some practical questions about how do we live as Christians in this pagan society. And so Paul takes the time to write this letter. He's going to write a third letter that we don't really have. And then he writes a fourth letter, which is the book of 2 Corinthians. So out of four letters, we have really two, but we know that there were at least four that were written. And this is the second of those four, the first one that we have in our scripture. Now, what's, what's sad about this church is that even though they are this young, cool, spirit-filled, God-filled, grace-filled church, they are terribly immature. What I mean by immature is that they are passionate, gifted, and growing, but because they are driven by their own self-interest, they are divided, unloved, immoral, and confused about how to make cultural decisions that glorify God. And so Paul writes this letter The reason this has happened to the church is because they have forgotten who God had called them to be in Christ Jesus. The culture around them was this thriving machine through the city of Corinth. And this young church, although they were young, they were powerful. This is a church that is full of gifted believers, that is full of God's grace. They are not some small, insignificant church It's a church that has been moving and been seeing God work, but despite all of God's grace poured out on their body, they have been changed from the world from the inside out, from the outside in, rather than the church changing the culture. The culture is changing the church. Sound familiar? You can't say amen, say ouch. It hurts. It hurts, but that's the reality. There was a word that was often used to describe worldliness in this day. And what they would say is that things had been Corinthianized. Or they would talk about living like the Corinthians. Kind of like keeping up with the Kardashians. It was not a good thing, right? It meant that you partied hard and you went for a fast pace of life. And so the church had become Corinthianized, much the same way that the church today has become Americanized. And we always have to run this tension of how do we walk in our culture? How do we as the church become the agent of change in our culture instead of allowing our culture to change the church? So a little bit of background on the city. Um, This was a major city. We have a map here that it's part of Greece and it is a major port city because as you can see, it's right here on this little isthmus, which is a fancy geographical term, which means there's water on both sides. Uh, And so it's this kind of little land bridge that's there that connects uh, parts of Greece together. And it is kind of the major metropolis in this area of its day. It was a major port city. It was also the city where they would hold the Isthmian Games, which were second only to the Olympics. Every other year, they would have people from all over the Roman world that would come to compete in these games. And the thing about the games back then was, nowadays we have gold, silver, and bronze. In their day, you had one winner. There was no participation trophies. You either won first place or you were a loser. And that's going to severely impact how the Corinthians live because they carry this mindset over into their church. What we see is that this church is, is in an affluent area. The population's over half of a million people. And their position, it's positioned as a major cultural center for the Greco-Roman world. And people from all over the world would come there, and it became this very popular and prosperous city. But it was one that had a very colorful, colorful reputation. You see, this, the Corinthians were known for being self-indulgent. They lived however they wanted to live. 
They would always seek to satisfy every pleasure in life. There was rampant immorality, drunkenness, and sexual promiscuity, and that's just in the first seven chapters. This is the church has been overwhelmed by these things. Part of the problem was that they lived under the shadow of the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And every night there would be a thousand temple prostitutes that would leave the temple and descend on the city. And they would offer their services to anyone and everyone who is willing. And so this attitude of living this way started to infect the church. We know that they were also an extremely diverse culture, but they were self-absorbed. They considered themselves individually and corporately as the center of the Roman universe. This is a city that was rebuilt in 44 AD by the emperor Caesar. The same year that he's assassinated, he rebuilds this city because he recognizes how powerful it is as a port and because of its culture. And so they kind of viewed themselves as such an important city. And so individually, they viewed themselves as the center of the world. And as a city, they viewed themselves as the center of the world. Now, had they known that a place called Texas existed, they would know that they weren't the center of the universe, but Texas is. So again, we're starting to see so many parallels with our world today. And lastly, we we know that they measured success by popularity, power, and prosperity. Gospel values like humility and sacrifice were despised. Remember, there can only be one winner. And I have to do whatever I can do to get ahead of everyone else so that I can be winner because the world revolves around me. Again, if you can't say amen, say ouch. Last thing we see is that they had developed a reputation for self-promotion. Everything in their life from their wealth to wisdom became all about promoting themselves. And I wrote this down. I want to read it directly this week. Uh, As I wrote this down, it says, The appearance of knowledge and persuasive rhetoric became more important than true wisdom and genuine action. They used cleverness of speech to prove their intellectual superiority in relationship to others, which became more important than having a real relationship with Jesus and others. Now, as I wrote that down this week, I thought, man, that describes almost every church I've ever been a part of where it becomes about how much knowledge I can obtain and how much more I know about the Bible than you know about the Bible. And it becomes this big contest to see who can know more rather than who can live more like Jesus. And we use our wisdom and we think because we have knowledge that that puts us up here spiritually. And we use it as a way to beat other people down rather than raising other people up. And this isn't to say that biblical knowledge is bad. We need to have knowledge of God's word so that we know what we're called to do. But when we seek knowledge for the sake of knowledge, we have missed the point. Sadly, we see that in 2,000 years, the church has not changed much. The same problems that they were facing in Corinth, we face here today. They're facing the same problem of today's superficial culture like social media. It was all about how many followers you could have. It was all about being liked. And it was all about uh, going viral at all costs. It was much better to them to present a lie well than to actually know the truth. They would rather be able to present a lie well than to know the truth. And it was all about keeping up appearances. And this leads to performance, antagonism, intimidation, and ultimately to depression. 
again, we see there's not much difference between the church in, in 1 Corinthians and the church, not just our church, but the church today, the struggles that they face. So we're not alone. We're not alone. And I hope Paul's letter is encouraging one to you. But there's a reason why Paul says that he's going to come to the Corinthians with fear and trembling. I want us to look at 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at a whole three verses today. Now you know why it's going to take 32 weeks um, to get through 16 chapters, because we're going to look at three verses today. And I'll, I want to read these to you, and we'll keep going in our message this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by God's will. Whose will? God's will. And Sosthenes, our brother, to, to God's church at Corinth. Whose church? God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now before we get into the main part of our message, I want to draw your attention to some things about Paul. You'll remember that he was the planter of this church, and he stayed in this city for about 18 months and kind of pastored this church. Now he's writing to them. There have been some questions about his authority. There are other people in the church saying, no, we don't have to listen to Paul. Don't listen to him. Listen to us. And so Paul writes, and he says that he's called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by whose will? By God's will. What he's saying is, look, I didn't ask for this. I didn't one day just decide that I was going to get on my knees and invite Jesus into my life. I didn't just decide that Jesus was going to be Lord of my life. No, Jesus came to me. He called my name and I responded in faith. Not only that, Jesus called me as an apostle. An apostle is the the word that's used here in original language means one who has been sent. A lot of times we use the word apostle and we think just of the original 12 but it also carries this this connotation of an ambassador, someone who's been empowered, who's been given the power uh, of someone to represent someone else. And so what Paul is saying very humbly, he's reminding them that, hey, listen, God has placed me as a leader over this church, but in humility, I'm reminding you that I'm in submission to God. I'm following him. This was not my idea. I didn't just come looking to to boss you around. I'm not looking to be an authoritarian in your life. But I am going to have to say some things, and I'm going to say them authoritatively, based on the word of God. And so he's very humble in this. And I know as Americans, we struggle with this idea of authority, don't we? Like we want to be self-governed because that's what our founding fathers stood for, self-government, and we don't like this idea that someone else would have authority in our lives. But what we have to understand is that God has given us leadership for our benefit. I encourage you to look at Hebrews thirteen seventeen and see that God gives us leaders for our benefit. And I'll say this about leadership, especially spiritual leadership, is that it, it requires great humility. It requires great humility. I could tell you that as a, as a pastor of this church, the elders of this church, our small group leaders, none of us have the desire to tell you how to live your life. Paul has no desire to tell the Corinthians how to live their lives. His desire is to see them walk closely with Jesus. And so he's going to tell them some difficult things. He's going to point out some things to them that are really hard to hear. But he's doing it because he loves them and he cares for them and he desires to see them walk closely with God. 
And I want to encourage you. I know as Americans, we don't like this idea of, of leadership being led, having authority in our lives, but Paul very clearly lays out a case here for the need for spiritual authority, for people to be in our lives to encourage us, to point out our flaws when we need it, and to lovingly say, hey, I want to see you walk more closely with God. I want to see you walk closely with him. And so Paul gently and humbly reminds them that, hey, God has allowed me to have this position in your life, and I don't take that for granted. I'm not here to just boss you around. I love you guys, and I want to see you walk closely with Jesus. And so he reminds them that it is God who has called him as an apostle. It is God who has called him. By the will of God, he's called to be an apostle. Let's look at what he says to the church. Look at verse 2. He says, To God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both their Lord and ours. So Paul is writing to who? To whose church is it? To God's church at Corinth. And then he says a couple of things about them. He says, To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints. He uses some really important terms here, and he uses these words have the same root word. They come from the same word, and they have very similar meanings. He's reminding the people of Corinth, the Christians in Corinth, that they are called as saints. They are called as saints. We are called to be saints. The first words he uses is sanctified. Sanctified simply means this, that you have been declared holy. The moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, who is the sinless son of God who died on the cross for our sins, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, God now, it's, it's big, big fancy theological word. Everybody say imputation. imputation. Imputation, here's what it means. It means you're credited with someone else's stuff, right? So here's how it works in Christianity. We're sinful over here. Jesus is perfect over here. The moment we put our trust in Christ, his righteousness is transported to us. And our sins were transported to him on the cross. So when God looked at him on the cross, God saw that he was dying for our sins. He was paying that penalty. It is paid in full. And when he looks at us, he sees Jesus' full righteousness on us. That is our position in God. Does that make sense? Is that clear? I want this to be absolutely clear. That when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, what God sees is not the sinner. He sees his son, Jesus Christ. Now, there's a problem with that, as we've talked about before. We're still filthy, rotten sinners. In practice, we have a position that says we are in Christ, we are made perfect. But our practice, our day-to-day life, we still mess up, we still sin. That is the practical reality of things. And so Paul is reminding them when he says, you are sanctified, he's reminding them of their position. And then he says, you are called to be saints. He's also reminding them of the practical reality that because of your position, you are called to live differently. Your position is not matching your practice, Corinth. Christians at Corinth, Your practice is not matching up with the reality of how God sees you. And so he's writing this letter to encourage them that I want your practice, how you live to match up with what God has already declared to be true about you. I don't know about you, but that's a message that I need to be reminded of regularly. That I find myself, if I'm not careful, I can easily 
wander away and think, well, you know, I know I'm declared righteous. I know I'm declared righteous, so I'm just going to do this over here and God will forgive me. And that was one of the big problems that they were having in Corinth, was people didn't understand grace. They viewed it as a license to sin rather than liberty to live under grace. And so Paul is saying, listen, Corinth, I am calling you to strive to make your life as much as possible to line up with the reality of how God has already viewed you. And that's a real struggle. And in the coming weeks, we're going to talk more and more about what does that actually look like? How do we live out our practical holiness in light of our positional holiness? And let me just say this, that this is not just about attending church on Sunday. It is a 24-7 deal. Like we talked about last week, when Jesus calls us into relationship, when he calls us into discipleship, it is a full-time deal. So we have to be fully committed, not just on Sunday mornings, but we have to be fully committed to living what one author describes as whimsical holiness. Now, as I've said before, when God calls us to be saints, he calls us to be holy, he's calling us to be set apart, to be separated radically for a special purpose. The instruments in the Old Testament temple were sanctified, they were dedicated, and they were set apart for a special purpose. They had a special job that they were called to do. And as followers of Jesus Christ, when when we are called and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are declared holy. We are sanctified, and in that moment, we are also set apart for a special purpose. That purpose is the mission of God. The mission of God is that we would make disciples in our Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so how do we do that? Well, it means that we have to be a little bit different. And again, not different in the weird kind of like, don't go talk to that guy, he's going to beat you over the head with a Bible. But weird in the kind of way that makes the people around us say, man, I don't know what is happening in your life, but I want it. I was having a conversation with one of our college students, our post-college students this week, and he said when he was in college, he and his brother started really walking with the Lord. And their friends around them started seeing this, and they said, we don't know what's going on in your life, but you guys are just always so happy. Like, even when bad stuff happens, you just have this, this joy. And we don't know what it is, but, but man, I don't understand why we don't have it. And he said, well, it's because you don't have Jesus. If you had Jesus, you'd have what we have. And that's what we're looking for. Not shutting ourselves in caves and holes and hiding away from everything, but engaging the culture, but engaging it with whimsical holiness that calls people to something different. We have to remember that we are called as saints. We are called as saints. We have to live out the reality of how God sees us. And the second part that I want us to see is this, that God has called the church as saints together. God has called the church as saints together. This is not an individual endeavor. The idea of a Lone Ranger Christian, the idea of someone saying, you know what, I have Jesus in my life, I'm good without the church, I don't need the church. That is a foreign concept to the New Testament. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. And look how Paul reminds the church of this. In the second half of verse 2, he says, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. 
So Paul is reminding them of two things. He's reminding them, number one, that they are a part of the local church as individual saints. They are part of the local church to God's church at Corinth. And then he reminds them that they are a part of the universal church throughout the world, made up of all those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. When he says, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. And he's reminding them, guys, you're a part of something bigger. Don't miss this. Don't miss this, that, that you are a part of something bigger than yourselves. You see, their, their individualness, their desire for self-promotion had caused them to turn inward, and they felt like, my life is the only one that matters. My family is the only one that matters. And then this spread into the church to where our church is the only one that matters. And Paul says, man, you guys are too narrow-minded. You're missing it. God's vision, God's mission is way bigger than just you. God's vision, God's mission is way bigger than just your church. Don't forget about the rest of your city. Don't forget about the rest of your surrounding area and the ends of the earth. And what I love about Paul is he doesn't just say these things. He doesn't just remind them of these things. He models these things. If you go back to verse 1, Paul says that he's with Sosthenes. You can go back in Acts chapter 18 and read about Sosthenes there. And and we know at some point he probably was converted. This is the same Sosthenes that's talked about, at least in my view, the same Sosthenes talked about in Acts chapter 18 who was beaten by the synagogue leaders uh, and beaten by the Greeks. And now he's a follower of Jesus. And so Paul is saying, look, I'm not alone. In fact, I can't think of a single time where we read about Paul traveling alone. He's always with somebody. Read Romans 15. He lists about 40 people who are working with him for the gospel. Not only is Paul reminding us of this, he's modeling this for us, that we are not alone. We are a part of something bigger and greater than ourselves. We are a part of something bigger and greater than just our church. God never calls us alone. God has designed us to be on mission as a group, not just as individuals. We are united, not divided. We have one purpose, not many preferences. And because God is not done, we are not done. There is only one mission. That is God's mission. Through us, God continues to make disciples, to build his team, to grow his church. Through us, the unfaithful, the unlikely, and the unprepared. How humbling is that? That God, who with a snap of his fingers could accomplish all that he desires. At his word, he created, yet he chooses to use us, the imperfect, to be a part of his mission. And he chooses to place us in a family where we can be a part of that. This is a family of families, the church. The church was not an addendum to God's plan, nor was it something optional. The church was God's plan A, and there is no plan B for the spread of the gospel. You look at what the New Testament believers did. The first disciples, when they went somewhere and they spread the gospel, they gathered people as a church, and they said, church, Your mission is to saturate this area with the gospel and to begin sending people to other parts of the world to plant more churches, to saturate with the gospel, to make disciples of every tribe, tongue, and nation. We are called together into one family, through one Savior, under one God, empowered by one Spirit. 
We are the brothers and sisters, and Jesus is our pastor. God is our leader. And by the will of God, we are River Rock Bible Church. What we have to understand, church, is that the church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. Amen? Let me say that again. The church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. And we are committed to being a part of that mission of making disciples of every tribe, tongue, and nation. We are going to live out the reality of who God has called us to be. We have to challenge ourselves every single day. Am I living up to how God sees me? I can tell you, when I was growing up, my, my parents are here today, and when I was growing up, there were plenty of opportunities for me to be on the receiving end of Rod. Um, if you're a regular here at River Rock, you know in our house we have, uh, we call him the Rod of Discipline. His name is Rod. He's a little wooden spoon. Um, Rod and I were best buddies uh, when I was a kid. But worse than the Rod was when my parents would look at me and say, you know, son, man, we are just so disappointed that you would make that decision. We're disappointed that you would choose to do that. That would hurt way more than any spanking that I could ever receive, especially as I got older. And you know what hurts for me the most is when God speaks into my life and I can almost hear him say, son, I love you so much. I wish you would just live up to who I know you are. I wish you would just make decisions that reflect who I see you to be because I know you can be more. The reality is, is that God is not calling us to do more, to be more, but to believe that in him we are more because he has declared so, that there is something greater for us than to blending in with our culture. I want to end with the last part of verse 3. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul ends with grace and peace. And let me say this, that grace always precedes peace. We've talked a lot today about living as saints, being sanctified, being set apart, declared holy by God. And that starts by the grace of God, by the will of God. When you, through faith, put your, son, put your trust in the death and resurrection of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, on your behalf. It starts there. And only when you receive that grace through faith can you truly experience peace. Theologically speaking, grace always precedes peace. And if you're here this morning and you have yet to put your trust in Jesus Christ, my desire for you this morning would be that you would experience that peace by coming to faith in Jesus Christ and receiving his grace. Not because of your works, but because of his completed work. My desire for you this morning, if you are a believer, is that you would understand that you have been sanctified and that no matter what the world sees when they look at you, because here's the thing that happens to me, I don't know if this happens to you, but in my life, I tend to believe the messages that the rest of the world says about me. And so I let some number on the scale or the you know, number on the back of my jeans or the number on the tape measure, or the number on the IQ chart, or the number of likes on Facebook, 
or the number of people that surround me. I begin to let those messages and those things affect who I am. Rather than to clinging to the one message and the one opinion that really matters, God's opinion. And to be reminded that God loved me enough to send his son. And that through faith in Jesus, I'm declared holy and loved by God, our Father and creator of this universe. And because of that holiness, I'm called to a better way of living. That encourages me more than anything. And so there's a need for us, even those who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ, there's a need for us to continually preach grace to ourselves, to preach that message, to preach the gospel to ourselves so that we can experience God's peace in our lives. God is gracious to us. God has given us this book of 1 Corinthians, I think, as an encouragement to let us know. What I love about this is that there are people in this book, man, as you read through 1 Corinthians, you're going to be like, these are Christians? Much the same way that sometimes we look around or we look at our own lives and we say, and I call myself a Christian? They call themselves Christian? These are Christians who are struggling and they're hurting, yet Paul calls them saints. He says, you are saints. You are loved by God. You are declared to be holy. Live that way. And so if you're struggling this morning, if there's an area of your life where you look at your life and you know that the people around you are saying, and you call yourself a Christian, know that you're not alone. Know that God still loves you and he desires more for you when you begin walking in grace and peace with him. This is a church that is divided. There's four different groups competing for leadership. This is a church that's disgraced. Instead of glorifying God, they're hindering the progress of the gospel because of their lifestyle. And there are going to be some hard words that Paul has for this church. He wants their practice to be in line with their position in Christ. But the motivation, the means, and the model for all of the change that Paul desires is the grace and peace that's found only in Jesus Christ. Did you know that even though we've had five amazing years of seeing God do amazing works, even though we are a gifted church, we are a passionate church, and we are a growing church, there's always the risk that we could end up being a church that is not Jesus Christ's church. We must encourage one another, encourage ourselves daily to live out our calling as saints, that our, our practice would line up with our position, and that we would honor the Lord in that. We are not called to become more, but to believe that we are more. In Christ Jesus, we are saints. We are set apart for his purposes. We are one family, united by one mission, the gospel. We are part of God's mission to make disciples. So how are you doing? Let's start with us as individuals. How are you doing? What changes is God perhaps calling you to make in your life so that your practice would line up with your position? And then I want us to think about how are we doing as a church? When the world looks at our church, when the city of Georgetown looks at our church, do they say there is a church that belongs to God's mission? Or do they say there's a church that really loves themselves? We've got to continue to challenge each other 
It is so easy for the church to turn inward. We've got to remember that God's call on us is to join him on mission and to keep our focus outward to reaching those who have yet to put their trust in Christ. And we do that by building ourselves up and building each other up and building up others around us. What is God calling you to do this morning? Where does your practice need to line up with your position? What part do you have to play in this church to use your gifts so that the practice of this church can line up with our position in our city and in the, to the ends of the earth? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has called us through faith to receive grace. Lord, we thank you that by your grace we are saved, not by our works, but as a gift of God. And Lord, it is in your grace that you call us and you set us apart and you declare us to be holy. And we ask that you would give us the strength that we need today to make our lives, our practice, line up with our position in your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray as a church that together, together we would be committed to this mission.